As of this morning, we only have two sections left in our study of the first half of the book of Exodus. And both of them have to do with dealing with family. That is a topic that is not popular with us. Because who in their right mind wants to deal with their own family? I was just speaking with someone in the past few days talking about how often I've, I found it interesting that I'll, I'll start talking to people and they'll bring up their extended family and kind of get embarrassed about it as if their family was the only abnormal family or family with some interesting character, shall we say, in it. As if that's not normal to all of us. But today we see a kind of family reunion and a kind of family feud as well. Because today we see the Amalekites who, if we've forgotten, are distant cousins of Israel and they stretch all the way back to Esau. And next week we're going to see Moses talking with Jethro an extended conversation. Now Jethro is not only Moses' father-in-law, but he likewise is also a distant cousin of Israel stretching all the way back to Midian. So, the Amalekites were from Sarah and Midian was from Keturah, who was Abraham's second wife. So Abraham and Sarah had uh, Esau that led to the Amalekites and Abraham and Keturah uh, had uh, ones that led to eventually Midian and, and on into Jethro. So all of these people although it's been hundreds of years at this point, are at least in some way distantly related. And so something special, I think, is unfolding here. Because up until this point, we've seen the, Egypt, or rather the Israelites be at odds with the Egyptians, people that they have no connection with. Or maybe at odds with themselves. But now, we see that they're at odds with their own family. And so this kind of reminds us of the Lord's promise in Genesis 12 that all the nations of the world would be affected through Abraham. Whether for good or for ill. Whether for blessing or for curse. All of this is happening now in these last two chapters. But sadly, this family reunion that we see here is not quite as peaceful I'd probably say we've had some family reunions that felt not too peaceful, a little tense, but hopefully nobody's brought out swords against one another at our family reunions. But when the Amalekites, who were nomadic wanderers, not unlike Israel themselves, see their long-lost cousins stumbling in the desert towards this oasis at Rephidim, they raise their hand in defiance of God, of the God of Abraham, their ancestor. And because of this, they bring a perpetual curse upon themselves. So while they're raising a hand against the Lord and His people, the Lord then tells Moses to raise His hand against them in return. And ultimately, through Israel, we see that the Lord will raise His own banner against them, securing a victory, securing deliverance once again for Israel, who certainly doesn't deserve it. Now last week you remember that Israel failed several tests. More tests to trust in God's character. More tests to rest in His provision. And what we saw is they just couldn't believe that God would provide food for them every day. So they went out and looked for food 
uh, or they rather they kept food overnight thinking uh, that they wouldn't have enough in the morning. But that food rotted and they went out and found more food. But except on um, the day before the Sabbath when God explicitly said, okay, now you can keep food and it'll preserve. But then they went out the next day and, and looked for food. So whatever God tells them to do, they do the exact opposite. They wouldn't believe that God would provide for them. They wouldn't provide food for them, but sure enough, He did. And then they also didn't believe that when they got to a place without water, even though God previously had made undrinkable water into sweet and rich and drinkable water, now there's a place with no water. And they think, once again, God's not going to provide. We saw that He does provide. Even if Moses has to take a rock and strike it and water, almost magically it would seem, comes gushing forth from that water. So instead of believing, instead of trusting, instead of resting in God, we see the Israels complain to Moses about their situation. And even worse than that, they accuse God of parental negligence. Both of these are such colossal failures of faith, and it's especially heinous since it's in a God who so decisively delivered them from their oppressors in Egypt. We wonder, how could they not believe God was going to be true? If He unleashed ten plagues, if He parted the Red Sea, if He brought food from the heavens, if He brought water out of nowhere, how could they not trust Him? But what we also learned, for them and for us, is that the Lord is not so easily swayed from His grace to unbelieving people. It really wasn't up to the Israelites to be good or to be believing for God to be gracious to them. God was going to be gracious to whom He was going to be gracious. And that turns out to be very good news for us who so often are like the Israelites. God's provided for us time and time and time again. And just when we think we reach a new trial in which He won't show up and we don't believe that He's going to help us, He's still gracious to do so. So even when people are at their absolute worst, even when they're grumbling to each other, even when they're at their most doubtful, even maybe when they're they're most sinful and rebellious, the Lord's intentions are always to outbless his disbelieving people. That's very good news for us. And so today we're reminded that God is always blessing whoever it is that comes to rest under his banner, under his name. So that brings us to our passage at hand. Now up until this point in their wilderness wandering, Israel had been their own worst enemy. They waged a kind of spiritual war on God Himself through their inexcusable whining. But now, a real battle is about to take place. And verse 8 tells us that at Rephidim, the Amalekites, again, their distant relations, attack them. So they start, the Amalekites started it. Now, the Scripture doesn't tell us precisely what the provocation was that got these Amalekites all up in arms, but the Amalekites were also a nomadic people and they're wandering in the wilderness and Rephidim happens to be a place where they could get maybe a little grass for their herds and a little water for themselves. And so maybe they're worried that the Israelites would come in, this large group of people, and deplete these resources and they'd have to be competitive over what they themselves would get over what their flocks would get. And so, they attack Israel. Now, maybe that's why, but we don't know for sure. But whatever the reason is for their attack 
Moses gives us insight into the Amalekites later in Deuteronomy 25, 17-18. He reminds Israel of this. He says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. This is years later. He's reminding them. They met you along the way and they attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. So the Amalekites reveal themselves for who they really are. Whatever the reason for their aggression, whether it was unprovoked or not, they reveal themselves not only to be enemies to Israel, but also enemies to God Himself. Because they show they have no fear of God. Because they attack not the strong warriors. They don't do the brave thing and and face the ranks head on. What they do is they wait for the children and the elderly. They attack the sick and the slow. And it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only do they not fear Israel, but they don't fear God. And they don't fear anybody who bears His name or His image. Now I think this is a good reminder to us that part of being a person of God is being a person that has profound and deep respect for the sanctity of the whole of human life. Now, Stanley Hauerwas, who's a Christian ethicist, once said, and this was just in the past few years, he said, in a hundred years, if Christians are known as those who do not kill their children or their elderly, we would have been doing something right. See, the way the world continues to go, we become more Darwinian in a sense. Survival of the fittest. Whoever is not productive, whoever can't benefit society at large, whoever is a quote-unquote drain of resources, these people don't deserve life like we do. The strong and the mighty and the productive. So it's incumbent upon Christians then to a God who gets angry when people take advantage of the least and the lowly. It's incumbent upon us to value all life then. To not set ourselves up as arbiter of whose life is worthy and whose life is unworthy. That's not our job as Christians. What we do with the life that we're given is to respect the life that God has given others from womb to tomb. To show that we don't favor just rich and powerful and talented and beautiful and successful people, but we love the poor and the lowly and the needy as well. This is to fear God. To not fear God is to attack and put down the people that are an inconvenient in your, in your life. That's what Deuteronomy says. To fear God, then inversely, as the Scriptures would tell us, is to value, is to treasure the gift of life that God gives to everyone. And we know that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So you want to know how you can be wise this week? Look at people around you that need help, that need prayer, that need resources, and be a blessing, not a hindrance to them. That is the wisdom of God. And that's to fear the Lord. So that's one thing we can learn from this. 
But God has something greater than the evil wisdom of this world in mind. See, Moses summons a man we hear about for the first time of many times in the Scriptures. Joshua, to be Israel's first great general. And as for Moses, when Joshua goes with his men into to battle, what's he going to do? He says, tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Now I think it's an almost blink and you miss it detail here. But Moses calls his own staff. He doesn't say, I'm going to take my staff up the hill. I'm going to take God's staff. I think there's something interesting happening there. Why would he call it God's staff? Well, why shouldn't he? Because this is the same staff, you remember, that when Moses first encountered God to prove who he was, God turned that staff into a serpent and it terrified Moses. And later, he turned it into a great beast, serpent-like beast in the courts of Pharaoh to terrify his officials. And it's the same staff that God used to turn the Nile River, a source of life and, 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 and wealth, into blood and death. And it's the same staff that God used to part the Red Sea for Israel to make their escape from Egypt and for those same waters to come crashing back down and to destroy the evil and oppressing Egyptians. And it's this staff that struck a rock, a solid, dry rock at Horeb or Mount uh, Sinai as we know it, and all of a sudden burst forth gushing with life-giving water. And all of those miracles were done by Moses with this staff that belonged to who, the Scriptures say? Not to Moses, but to God. Now, I think this should help us be keyed in to this next section, what's going to happen. Whatever Moses is going to do on the hilltop with that staff, it's not truly Moses that's doing it. It's God through Moses. Now Moses may be working as God's human agent. He may be obeying, and that's an essential ingredient here. But the reality is, there's nothing about Moses or this staff that's magical. Rather, it's God working through ordinary people and ordinary means to bring out an extraordinary result for His people. See, verse 10 tells us, that two other people go up the hill with him. Aaron, who we heard about, and her, somebody we don't know much about. Now, who is her exactly? Well, later in uh, in the Scriptures, we learn a little bit more about her. Her is from the tribe of Judah. This is a royal line in the tribe of, or in, in, in the people of Israel. It's where... David and Solomon come from. It's ultimately where Jesus comes from. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. And later in Exodus, we'll find out that her, this person that we haven't heard of up until this point, is considered like a judge and a, um, an elder among the people. So he has an important place of leadership. And later yet, we find out still, this is surprising, in First Chronicles, we learn that he's the son of Caleb. You remember of Joshua and Caleb? So her is probably a young man at this point. And we learned also later that he's the grandfather of Bezalel, the one that the Holy Spirit empowers to make this tabernacle. So this person that seems just out of the blue to us, 
when we read the entirety of Scripture, we see that there is something special in this family line. And it reminds us that God's royal people come through this line of Judah. And so here we see Aaron from Levi's tribe, who are the tribe of priests. And then we see her from Judah, who are the tribe of kings. And so here's a priestly tribe and a kingly tribe, and we read that they go up on the hilltop with Moses, who's acting as God's prophet to Israel, and they support him there. Now do we see what's happening? On this hilltop, we have a prophet, we have a priest, and we have a king working together to win God's victory. To serve the Lord's purpose and His end. Well, how exactly do Aaron and how exactly do her support Moses? We read that while Moses held up his hands, presumably with God's staff, Israel prevailed over the Amalekites, but when he got weary and took his hands down, then the Amalekites prevailed over the Israelites. So what exactly is happening here? Now, there's plenty of conjecture about this. Again, Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us. So some thinks this is just, you know, this is a symbol of support. You know, if they're in the middle of battle and the Israelites look up and see Moses standing there that it rallies their spirits. That's probably unlikely in my opinion because <laughs> when somebody's swinging a sword at your head, you're not going to look up to see, how's Moses? Is he giving me a thumbs up over there? So, so that's probably not. That's been some speculation about this, but I, I think that's uh, just uh, getting a little too far away from what's obvious here. I think whatever's happening, and again, we're not explicitly told, I think that there must be a certain element of, of spiritual power in this because Moses is most likely praying. He's most likely in prayer before God about what's happening. And the reason why is because there's other places in the Scriptures that tell us when a prophet or a priest raises up their hands, they're doing it in prayer. So we think over in Nehemiah 8, when Israel's rebuilding their temple and Jerusalem, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later, Ezra raises up his hands in prayer to God for Jerusalem and for the temple's blessing. So that's another image where we see the raising of hands signifies prayer. And then King David and several of his psalms, like Psalm 28, and Psalm 63 talks about lifting up his hands and prayer, prayer for protection, prayer for salvation. So what's most likely happening is that Moses lifting up his hands is um, as a metaphor, it's a symbol of his praying. That's what that means, I think. And he's putting all of his energy into it, body and soul. But notice that as Moses goes up and he takes God's staff by which God works wonders and he raises his hands and he's praying, the text tells us that he gets weary. In other words, he can't sustain it by himself. He can't do it alone. His hands grow heavy. And verse 12 says, Aaron and her support each hand on either side of him. Now Christian, when you are embroiled in a spiritual battle, when you are praying desperately for healing for a loved one, when you are praying for deliverance from a trial, 
when you were praying for help in time of financial need, when you were praying for justice, for a time when you've been slandered or maligned or, or taken advantage of, when you are praying for hope as you're grieving and loss, you cannot win that battle alone. You can't be the only one raising your hands in prayer. You won't be able to do it by yourself. You need your church family coming along each side of you and holding up your hands in prayer and putting their hands up in prayer for you. We cannot live a healthy and sustainable Christian life. Folks, it is impossible to live a good Christian life if we don't help each other in the hard work, the wearying labor, the raising hand work of prayer. Not only by ourselves, but with one another. Notice how when Moses prays, Israel succeeds. And when he falls away, Israel recedes. I would go on to argue, so it is with our spiritual life. When we are in the act of praying on a regular basis, lifting up our hands together, we see that God works. And when we step back and put our hands down and try to go about our business by ourselves or accomplish things in our own power, we see nothing but disappointment and defeat. Expecting to get through all the burdens and assaults and tragedies of this life, be they physical or emotional or spiritual or mental or material or anything else, without prayer and without the prayer of others, is to simply prepare yourself for defeat. That's why Paul tells us, pray. Remember, he's writing, and he, when he writes this in his letter to the church, he's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a congregation. He's writing to all of us. He says, pray without ceasing. Pray together. Pray constantly. Support each other. Sustain each other's hands in prayer. Christian, your life cannot be sustained if you do not pray. That's the simple fact about it. But notice that while prophet, the prophet Moses' strength fails, and Aaron the priest and royal Hur struggled to keep his arm steady, notice there's something else the text tells us that helps them all. Notice that when all of them are struggling together to keep on praying, that they rest on a rock. Just last week, we saw Moses strike the rock for it to pour out life-giving water. Now, we could maybe just walk away with that without knowing or thinking any more of it. But Paul won't let us. He grabs us by the collar and brings us back to the book and points at it with a finger. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, this rock was and is Christ. A rock that can't move on its own followed them. It was before them. It was behind them. It was a rock that both led them and protected the way as they went. And now we see another rock. 
I can't think this is coincidental, Christian. I think this rock must be interpreted yet again as Christ. See, when Moses was wearied from praying as a prophet, and the priest was weary of holding him up, and the king is, is, can't do anything more to help him, it's upon this solid rock that they can rest. And so as Moses prays, and as Joshua wages war, by God's staff, not Moses' staff, God's staff that's being held up, and on the rock that is Christ, the battle is won. See, church, God chose to work through His people and with His people and in His people. Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay says, he gives us a portrait of what's really happening. If if he can give commentary, if he's like, you know, when you're watching a a football or baseball game and something happens on the field and you don't... Uh, referees are coming around. You don't understand what happened. You need a commentator to pull back and say, well, this is what happened. This is what the ruling is. This is the reality and the situation of the game. That's what, that's what commentators do. He says, this is what we're seeing in Scripture. Heavenly forces fight alongside earthly ones, or rather, fight above them. So indeed, the implication is that, that were this not so, Israel would lose the battle. So perhaps, this is what he's saying, perhaps we are to imagine that Moses, by lifting up his hands in prayer, is directing heavenly forces, even as Joshua on the ground is directing earthly forces. You see that? So when Moses is praying, he's not being passive. He's waging spiritual battle against the the evil, malevolent, Personal forces that stand against God and His creation. That's the importance of prayer. That's why we, we would see if somebody is about to get hit by a train, we wouldn't passively uh, stand by and do nothing about it. If we were to walk by two children beating up a smaller child, we wouldn't do anything about it we would intervene and, 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 and pull them back and stop and we would help. To not pray then is to not ask for these spiritual forces on God's side to, to help, to ask God to command and direct them in such a way to stop these invisible evil forces that are at work in our life. We'll talk about this tonight when we talk about and the Lord's Prayer being delivered from evil. But I think He is so right here. What Moses is, is doing in prayer is as real as what Joshua is doing on the ground. We have to be a people of prayer. That these spiritual things, dark spiritual things, would not overtake us. But we also have to be like Joshua. We can't just be standing back and praying and not actively obeying and doing what God has told us to do. We're a people of prayer and of obedience. Those things go hand in hand. Whether by staff or whether by sword. But notice this. It wasn't Moses or Joshua who wins. It was God who prevails through them. This prompts us, church, to remember that while we are called 
to be holy in every way with our heads, with, a, with our minds, with our hearts, what we love, with our hands, what we do. It's ultimately God through us that uses our good words or our good works to bring about His blessing on the world or His curse upon the evil and sin that would destroy it. So whenever we go out, whenever we're praying and that that prayer is answered or wherever we go out to help and that request is met, it is not anything we do but God through us that does it. Nevertheless, He chooses to work through us to get that job done. This is such an amazing thing that in verse 14, after the battle is won, the Lord prompts Moses to write this down on a scroll and to preach it to Joshua as a reminder. See, this where he says, I will completely blot out even the memory of Amalek under heaven. And ironically, we only remember the Amalekites today because of this word. But what we also see is that it's important to remember what God has done. It's important that these things be commemorated and not forgotten. God knows His people. He knows that they can step away from a moment and immediately forget about it. And so it must be written so it can be recited and read and remembered what God has done and what God will do. God has delivered them victory and God will stop all evil. That's what this text would assure them. But just two years later, folks, Israel will go up against the Amalekites again on the border of the land of Canaan and they'll be so afraid of them, so petrified that they will not even pray, God, help us again to succeed. They'll just say, no, we're done. Let's Let's pack it up. Let's go back. And they will not have remembered anything. And because of that, they will spend the next 40 years of their life wandering in the wilderness because they refuse to remember, because they don't pray, because they don't remember, and so they bring a a curse upon themselves where they spend the remainder years of their life spinning their wheels in the sand, unlocking a curse of their own for not trusting the infinitely reliable Lord. And in their own way, ironically, the curse that's on the Amalekites, they bring on themselves. The Amalekites were against God and His people. And the Israelites wouldn't say they're against God, but aren't for God either. And they receive the just ends of that belief. Well, do it yourself, the Lord says. If you don't want to trust Me, go ahead and have it your way. And it leads them to death. And yet it's here, at this moment, that we see God first tell Moses to begin the work of making a written record of all of this of God's promises and victories for Israel. And here I believe that we see the book of Exodus begin to take shape under Moses and Joshua. The first collections of writings, the first drafts that would be compiled and edited and put together, and finally, one day we have this book of Exodus. So I think, just as how we have seen in this passage the importance of prayer, I think we're also supposed to see the importance 
of reading Scripture in order to remember what God has done and what God will do. See, in praying, we show that we trust God. And in reading Scripture, when we forget, and boy, oh boy, do we forget, we're reminded why we trust God in the first place. See, we pray to show that we trust. But how can we trust if we don't know anything about Him? And that's why we have the Scripture, so we can read and remember and pray and trust. You see how that works together? See, in the Scriptures we find the God who liberates us from sin and death. The Lord who provides for all of our needs and wins all of our battles in the wilderness of our life. And all of this leads us ultimately to the altar of faith where we see Moses has already built one himself, an altar of stone, and named it, The Lord is My Banner. Now what does that mean? The Lord is My Banner. It means the Lord is My Flag. He's My Insignia. He's My military standard. Pastor Philip Graham Ryken says that soldiers might look to their flag to establish their identity. They see it raised and it reminds them who they are, what they're doing, and what it is they're doing this for. Their identity is not anything in and of themselves in their situation or their moment, but it is something greater. And that's what these, the flags serve as symbols of. And so for Moses and Israel, their identity is not in anything in and of themselves. Their flag, their banner, their identity is in the Lord for them. Their liberator, their guide, their provider, and their redeemer. Now church, the Lord is also our banner. See, we look to the Lord to find who we are. We don't search deep inside We don't go out in the world looking for answers. We look to the Lord to be reminded that even when we fail, and boy, do we often fail, we learn of why we must pray and persevere, why we must read and remember, because our banner is the Lord. And that's who we belong to, who we are a part of. And we remind ourselves when we look to Him that we find our purpose and meaning and life and who God is. Indeed, Moses closes this passage by saying, my hands were raised towards the Lord who is my banner and my hands were raised to Him and His throne. And as Christians, when we raise our hands either in worship or prayer, we too look to the Lord's throne. And when we look to the Lord's throne, the first thing we see is the cross of Jesus Christ. That banner is raised and lifted up high. And upon that banner, we see the rock upon which Moses, Aaron, and Hur relied. We see the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king in one person. And it's by His cross that He defeats not only the curse of the Amalekites. He defeats our curse as well of sin and death. And as Moses says, from generation to generation. And so today, Christian, we celebrate Jesus who is our Lord and is our banner. And on an earthly cross, we see that He was enthroned first. 
But now, on the heavenly throne, He rules and reigns. And He answers our prayers. And He speaks to us through His Word. He guards and He guides us. He helps and He heals us. And He leads us by His life into the promised land where we will have new and resurrected life in and with Him forever. And so we say, the Lord is our banner. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Lord, as we face whatever battles are ahead of us this week, keep us close by prayer and by the Word. Be our banner for us, our King and Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.